millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. There were a few too many decisive penalty kicks for most people's liking in the Premier League on Saturday. Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Man United all winning their games from the spot. It's no way to win a football match. So well done to the officiating team at the Burnley West Ham game yesterday who applied a far more liberal interpretation of the rules, what we might call some Formula One logic. Yes, Burnley's Dwight McNeil hacked the legs from under Craig Dawson in the penalty box, but play away, lads. Let's have somebody win this thing fair and square with a 35-yard screamer instead. Unfortunately, there was no one lap, no holes barred, Hamilton Verstappen-style race to the finish in this one. Instead, the match petering out to a nil-nil draw. Welcome to Monday's Set Cups Football Podcast. Hi, fellas. And no oh, one wants to see you? that on, do they? You know, give the people what they want. And Burnley nil, West Ham nil is not what the people want. <laughs> what can what can you do though? All you can do is try and win it out and win it out in open play there, lads. And unfortunately, nobody's able to do it in this case. But uh, there are a lot of good penalty takers in the Premier League. It turns out as well. There are a lot of penalties in the penalty league. Penalty takers get lots of practice in the, of, the Barclays Penalty League. Practice penalty league. Yeah, we're going to be talking about this in your report on Spork. And this is only the first of our football pods this week. Loads more coverage in the next few days with a full round of games in the Barclays penalty league uh, this midweek. So hopefully more matches decided from with goals from open play. John Bruins on today with Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap to reflect on Stephen Gerrard's return to Anfield. But let's just get straight into it. Well, let's get straight into it, Owen. Um, the tweet that caught my attention this weekend. I'm new to F1, writes Harry Kane, and it's been amazing to watch Lewis and, Lewis and Max battle it out. I'm no expert on it, but I feel like there's some bizarre rules that give an unfair advantage, like today. Why should Hamilton be penalised for somebody else's crash? He literally raced the perfect race under the highest pressure. He gets the World Championship taken away from him. Seems like common sense to keep the lead that you race so hard to gain. Shame it had to end like that. <laughs> I haven't seen the, the underlying sporting event. I seem to be in a small minority of people who aren't interested in Formula One. Um, I, when did this suddenly happen? I thought Formula One had, had died. 
this year. Well, it happened. I mean, if you listen to our email, or let's not talk too much about this. We have got yeah, another hold on podcast. A We've got a whole other podcast yeah. to talk about Formula One here. Well, look, no, don't like, worry. We're, not, we're not going to talk about it for much longer. I just let, let, let us be quite frank here, Ken. If if me and Old laid out everything we do about Formula One in, in <laughs> like in two just streams of consciousness, we would still barely get past the ten minute mark. So yeah, it's I'm not really feel too podcast, So steady on there. But I, I can tell you, Ken, it's a combination of factors. The Netflix documentary Drive to Survive was very popular. The uh, emergence of Max Verstappen to challenge Lewis Hamilton's dominance, Lewis Hamilton himself going for record-breaking eighth in a row, and then just the crazy closeness of the affair this year. Loads of controversial incidents over the last number of weeks. A couple of times it seemed to me Verstappen trying to run uh, yeah. Hamilton off let's, the road. Let's but, be quite frank here, Rod. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot to recommend a sport where you tune in at one o'clock and there's a fairly good chance that by 1.01pm, one of the main world title contenders will have been knocked off the road by the other one. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I could, I could certainly, I was, as I was sitting down to watch yesterday, I certainly did think, well, I can certainly, I can give this five minutes because something dramatic is going to yeah. happen within those five minutes. But the dramatic minutes. thing this time happened in the, in the final lap, which essentially mm. ended up being a one lap race off. So that's your I can understand where Harry is coming from. I can see where Harry is getting confused. Well, look, you know, I've, unlike Harry Kane, I've been watching uh, Formula, One, Formula One since the 90s, um, <laughs> since the 80s, in fact, uh, since before the he was 80s? born. I mean, I was, I was around, I'm sure I saw it on television at some stage. I can still <laughs> see in my mind's eye Mika Hakkinen's famous overtake at Spa. Wasn't it, uh, <laughs> wasn't it 2000? But that was literally around the time that I lost all interest. And to be honest, I wasn't ever really that interested because, like, why would anyone be interested in this? I don't understand. But apparently Netflix has saved it somehow. Mm. Like, people have started watching the Netflix thing and now suddenly they're like, oh, I'll watch the, let's watch the race as well. This is literally the other podcast where we're going yeah. to talk about this stuff. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, well, we'll, we'll, we'll park that. We'll answer we'll all park, your questions. We'll, park, we'll, we'll, pit, we'll pit stop that, Owen. And we'll, uh, Maybe Hamilton should have pit stopped for some new tires well, again, but listen. Yeah. That's oh. a again. Oh, no, hold on a minute now. Hold on a minute. The, I, only, I saw in. a report of it on the news, but it seemed like the other guy was just getting new tires the whole time. Oh, yeah, every every second lap for Sappen is like, ah, oh, just stop for another set of new another fresh new, tires. New tires and speeding away. Fair play to him. Um, so what else? Uh, so uh, we're talking later to to Neil and John. Obviously, that that uh, Stephen Gerrard's emotional return to uh, Liverpool ending in tears. Gerrard's tears as he cried over the penalty decisions. Um, he he must have hated himself uh, saying some of the stuff he said after that game. Owen, uh, we thought Salah fouled Mings. He said, <laughs> which was honestly, I thought, wow, this is real. We're really into the loyalty test zone now, aren't we? <laughs> you know, Jared Jared Houllier famously, when he returned to Liverpool as the Aston Villa manager, was like sort of waving to Liverpool fans and you know, sort of bashfully acknowledging their um, serenading him and stuff. And Jared was to switched on to to go in for any of that that type of nonsense, and instead came out and, and claimed that Mo Salah had actually failed Tyrone Mings. <laughs> it shouldn't, shouldn't have been, if anything, it was a penalty the other way. Well, no, that would, wouldn't have made any sense. And there was also um, claimed a penalty for, for Ings uh, mm. at the other end of the field. What, what he said was, uh, it was a t- uh, story of two penalties. Liverpool got theirs, we didn't get ours. And I was like, yeah, I think he was quite anxious to ensure that the... You know that Liverpool, Liverpool, Liverpool and, and we, we there's two teams, are Liverpool Aston Villa. Yeah, two teams, and that's um, there is no confusion on my end, and there shouldn't be any confusion on anyone else's end either. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I thought that was actually the Salah penalty 
was one of the least contentious of all of the big uh, penalties that were awarded. I mean, it was basically a week where almost every game is decided by a, pe- a penalty decision or, t- or two penalty decisions. You know, starting off with uh, Man City. Well, no, it was Brentford, actually. Brentford got a penalty um, the, in the Friday night game to win late, which I thought was a penalty. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Man City got a penalty, which you could see. I think, you know, I mean, I, I'm loath to say... Look at the contrast in the reaction between Joao Moutinho and Tyrone Mings in terms of when these these are the two players who gave away the penalties. But Joao Moutinho gave one of the best um, outraged victim of injustice reactions I've seen in years. You know, you just knew there was no way this was no way. But at the same time, it's about, um, you know, some players are better at selling this than others. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, so you can't you can't just rely on that. Maybe Mings is just a sort of phlegmatic kind of player who's just like, look, you know, I've never seen a referee reverse one of these decisions. Well, actually, in fairness, they reverse them all the time now. <laughs> they're, 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 they're always getting reversed uh, when the referee looks at the uh, looks at the video replay. But, um, you know, he, he just sort of, by his reaction, it seemed as though he kind of thought, well, okay, that was a foul. Whereas Moutinho was was clearly saying, no, the ball hit my armpit. How can you give that against me? And I don't think it should have been given against me because the ball hit his armpit first and then bounced up, um, hit him on the arm. And to me, I don't think that should be a penalty. Um, Chelsea had two given. I thought they were both penalties. Uh, Leeds had one given. I thought it was a penalty. Um, I, love, I love Chelsea against Leeds. Or leads against Chelsea, and I think it's one of the great sadnesses. One of the great sadnesses in my football watching life in recent years that Frank Lampard never got to manage Chelsea at Leeds in front of supporters. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's so it's it's so sad uh, that we his, his head boy Mason Mount did make sure to taunt the Leeds uh, supporters after his goal though. I actually didn't see it, but I mean, Rafinha was taunting the Chelsea supporters, so he was just Mason Mount was just getting back for the for Chelsea. But I, what I love is the way that these new this new generation of players, who I'm sure have never heard of Norman Hunter, or well, maybe Mason Mount has heard of Norman Hunter, maybe, but you know, I'm I'm pretty sure Antonio Rudiger hasn't, or or you know, I'm pretty sure that Rafinha, you know, doesn't care about Frank LaBeouf, you know, does Rafinha does Rafinha remember Frank LaBeouf? I mean. I doubt he ever watched him play, but the way in which the you know Leeds Chelsea is a famous bad blood game dating back to incidents in the late sixties and early seventies, right? And then continues to be. Uh, I mean, I remember an amazing Leeds Chelsea game that I watched uh, was one of the highlights of my life. Watching Leeds beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, Stephen McPhail scoring two goals for Leeds, if I'm not mistaken, and Frank LaBeouf getting sent off like a madman. Um, amazing, like, but but somehow it just sort of wells up from within the fixture. This hatred, okay, it may it may have something to do with the supporters. <laughs> it may have something to do with the supporters. They are, of course, I haven't mentioned them, but they do remember some of these old games, and they do bring a certain amount of uh, spice uh, to what's going on. Some of the chanting wasn't wasn't very nice, I don't think, uh, from what was going on, from, from what was reported from the game. And um, maybe that that is what eventually... I mean, you see these players brawling at the end. You know, we're talking about German, Spanish, Brazilian players, but all of them know that they're in a Leeds-Chelsea game. And I just think there's something magnificent about that. (laughs) Where were we? Uh, Oh, yeah. Back to all the penalties. I mean, I don't want to just talk about penalties the whole time. Leicester got a a penalty. I mean, for some reason, Madison was picked out as kind of the villain 
you know, oh, look at this, this is the, you know, this is one of the worst um, examples. I think Graham Soonis blamed foreigners for influencing him or <laughs> like he kind of learned that off foreign players who brought that into our game. Madison, who is obviously, you know, uh, as English as the day is long. Um, yeah, it was one of those, the, the defender leaves a leg there and Madison, of course, is going to go over that leg. Yeah, I mean, he, he went into and over the leg. I mean, was it a penalty? You know, it was against Newcastle, and nobody nobody really cares. Yeah, give the penalty against Newcastle. We've missed a trick here, by the way. There really there could have been a Ken's Ghouls just translated to penalties for today's show. Ken's uh, Pens. Just, Ken's Pens. Ken's Pens. Ken's Pens, yeah. We name out the fixture, and Ken, Ken goes, for me or not for me. Yeah. That's, that's no pen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for so, me, Leicester, Newcastle, Ken? For me, for me. Not for me. For, for me, for me. Um, I, I thought it was a, I, I didn't think it was a penalty, but, you know, I think the tune. We don't, we don't actually have to do it for each one. I think the tune are going, dude. Um, it, looks as, it looks as though they are. Madison was up for it, but the tune are going, dude. And uh, if you saw, with the highlight of the game, I thought, I mean, aside from the highlight of the game was realistically Yuri Tielemans and, James Madison, Madison's little pass through to Harvey Barnes for, um, wasn't it the Patsandaka goal? But mm. the highlight still for me was the way that Brendan Rodgers greeted Eddie Howe before the game. I've just never seen a man touch another man so many times. Like he looked like, uh, it, it just it looked like boxing combinations. You know what I mean? Like just like the hand speed. Of Rogers, as he sort of, <laughs> as he gets his hands on Eddie Howe and sort of presses him in so many different welcoming ways <laughs> to sort of greet him and, and welcome him to the King Power. It was honestly, it was magnificent. And even just at the end, like they're sort of almost turning away, but like Rogers just the head sort of whips around one time and just the hand shoots out just for one little, one last little pat on sort of the love <laughs> handle region. And I thought that is magnificent. Like Rogers is on it today. Like, he's alert, he's alive, you know, and he's on it and he's all over it. And Leicester were all over Newcastle. And, you know, we could quibble about the penalty, but clearly they, they were the better team and, and deserved the three points. So what else? Um, West Ham, of course, uh, betrayed by the officials. The only ones the only ones who aren't handed a free penalty winner of all of the, the top four sides. Manchester United, of course, handed a, handed a penalty, um, uh, which, was, which was great. Um... Uh, Ronaldo rescued them again. There's no, there isn't another player at that club, Owen, who'd been able to score that pres- that pressure penalty against Norwich. Also won the penalty course. with uh, his uh, relentless um, drive for goals. I don't think there's another got player between, at that club got- who's who, who's capable of winning a penalty. Although it does strike me that they didn't they get something like twenty penalties last season awarded, um, and that's a, that's that's an element of their game that hasn't been up to the same standard this season. Uh, in the in the, the last winning couple of penalties. Of, yeah, well, I mean, they they did. If you look at, I can't remember what the exact number was, but there was a crazy number of penalties they were awarded last season. Uh, ah, but which, I, as Sir Alex would say, Ken, the season re- only really kicks in after Christmas, so I, I think we we're going to see a major uptick in Manchester United being given penalties after the after the festive period. Oh, you, no. you know where you stand after the festive period when it all shakes out, then you up the up the ante. Yeah, although although. Um you know, if you want to win a penalty, there's something very important you've got to do first, and that is get out there on the field and play the game because it looks as though maybe Man United's game tomorrow against Brentford is in doubt because of a COVID outbreak in the squad. So 
Tottenham, apparent, apparent, Tottenham's game obviously yesterday was postponed and their game on Thursday was not postponed but cancelled and although I haven't seen a decision yet, I guess that's going to be a um, a defeat for Tottenham. You know, they're, they're going to be knocked out of the Europa Conference League and they're just going to have to find a way to to take that blow in their stride and carry on. But um, are Manchester United going to play tomorrow if they're missing a lot of players? We still don't know how many or, or which players or any of this type of thing. But I find it hard to imagine them saying, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, um, we saw Tottenham, one of our main rivals uh, for, you know, what we want to achieve in the league this season. Um, calling off a game because of this but we Manchester United are better than that we're going to soldier on uh, playing 17 year olds you know let's wait let's wait and see about that so I'm not sure if that game's going to be happening Uh, obviously the game um, the game on Saturday uh, one of the big talking points out of it was Victor Lindelof Uh, and again there hasn't been any more word from the club on exactly what it was that happened to Lindelof Although, to add to what Ralph Rangnick said after the game, which is that he was involved in a collision and uh, then he had problems to breathe for a few minutes and that's why they decided to take him off. Um, this obviously has uh, been interpreted uh, by uh, some people online as more evidence of, uh, I suppose, a huge a cover-up. Uh, there's nothing to see here. Nothing to see here was, I think, what Trevor Sinclair tweeted with an angry face, an angry emoji that suggested there very much was something to see here. And if Trevor Sinclair's past output um, on on Twitter, in, you know, over the last few weeks in, in Twitter and in and broadcast is any guide, um, what he's wondering about is, you know, what does this have to do with the vaccine? Mm, I see you tackle this one in your Irish Times column today what oh and what a joyous thing it is to have to write a piece about um vaccine skepticism uh (laughs) and cardiac rest in football uh what with with what a happy uh what what joy in my soul did i sit down to write about this subject oh jesus christ literally the rest of the world is watching the f1 and (laughs) okay so what so what is going on okay there's a lot of speculation about this uh, you know, people are like, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? You know, we've never seen anything like this before. It's never been seen before. We've never seen it before. This type of, um, uh, the, the, these, uh, this epidemic of, of uh, things like Lindelof. I mean, but here, here's, the, here's the thing just to note about Lindelof. Peter Lindelof, as far as anybody knows this point, certainly Manchester United haven't given any, any indication, didn't have any cardiac issue. You know what I mean? The evidence point that we do have regarding Lindelof is he he was involved in a collision with another player. You know what I mean? That's the that's the that's the direct evidence we have regarding what happened with Victor Lindelof. The circumstantial evidence is that Manchester United have a COVID outbreak in their squad as well. That's you know that's sort of a you know an unrelated uh, though interesting fact. Thus thus far unrelated. Uh, fact but like the kind of the the rush to sort of go well as trevor sinclair does you know nothing to see here like sort of the the insinuation without any evidence is this has obviously got something to do with that vaccine cover-up that's going on you know what i mean and uh looking around there's been there's been a few incidents recently charlie wyke the wigan player uh, had a cardiac arrest in training I mean, this, is, this isn't normal. This isn't normal, is it? His club, Wigan, put out with his consent a statement, uh, this was at the end of November, saying specifically he had not been vaccinated because so many people were saying, well, you know, the vaccine, you know, why aren't they telling us? Why aren't they telling us about the vaccine? You know, when we say this isn't normal, this isn't normal, uh, 
The unfortunate reality about football is that this actually is normal. Hmm. Like, that's statistically, yeah, this is normal. As in, as in players get... So the conspiracy theory is that, that, that players are getting vaccinated and then dropping down with cardiac arrests, right? Hmm. That's, that's what people are saying. This yeah. is happening... Way more than it used to happen. Yeah. What's the story? Why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody why, talking why, about why this? Why is it being Listen, swept under the carpet? Yeah. Ken, they're only asking questions. So, mm. can you answer the question? Has someone else high up in football thought to ask this question? Well, the the yeah, I mean FIFA. Uh, so FIFA, um, FIFA actually in 2014 set up a, a registry um, for people to log the incidence of cardiac emergencies uh, in football. Uh, not just um, not just players who unfortunately die of heart problems, but who uh, suffer heart problems and survive. You know, like for instance, David Ginola uh, did, or Fabrice Mwamba, or you know, there's 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 a lot of examples. Um, but the point about this is that um, this actually this actually has been happening quite a lot. Okay, so for instance. Um, a study on this, uh, the British Journal of Sports Medicine, this is a December 2020 publication, looking at data from the FIFA registry with data from media monitoring, this is the years 2014 to 18. So the FIFA registry set up in, four, in 2014, so it's that period, 2014 to 18. Four, they found 475 instances of sudden cardiac death. This is players who had, with a further 142 uh, cases where the players suffered a cardiac event but survived. This is this is to do with football. I mean, they are, they ruled out various other cases. I mean, for instance, we started this conversation talking about Victor Lindelof. Victor Lindelof should have nothing to do with this. I want to I want to point out because there's no suggestion Victor Lindelof as yet has, has had any kind of cardiac event. Right? I'm talking here about cardiac events because this is where this the most of the the focus seems to be. You know, from from this vaccine thing. So so. Lindelof, I bring up purely because what happened to him became a focus of this speculation. Sinclair mm. being being one of the people. Okay, so Dr. Florian Egger is the name of the guy who, well, he was one of the, I think there were four authors of the study. He was the lead author. So he was asked about this because people, you know, it's not as though this is a, a new thing. People have been saying this. Oh, you know, have you seen, you know, when it happened with Ericsson, that was sort of the first big instance of it. Oh, Ericsson, when Ericsson collapsed in the Euros, it's like, oh, the vaccine. Inter's doctor had to come out and say, Ericsson has neither had COVID nor been vaccinated. Inter, Inter being Ericsson's uh, club. So he, he came out to, to say that at the time. Sergio Aguero had a problem. Sergio Aguero apparently is doing a press conference on Wednesday. It, it seems like maybe Sergio Aguero is going to have to retire with this cardiac arrhythmia that he had. I don't know whether Sergio Aguero was vaccinated. I do know that he had COVID in the summer. Um, and then he had a problem in his debut for Barcelona. He, he was taken off. He's diagnosed with a heart arrhythmia. He hasn't, um, he hasn't played since. You know, a major, uh, a major player, a major star, Sergio Aguero. Um, but just, so, so you see this, uh, Zielinski, Peter Zielinski, the Polish player at Lazio, yesterday uh, was taken off in similar sort of circumstances to Lindelof, said he, said he had, had problems breathing. Mm. Okay, so you can see how there's this, like, what's going on? You know, there's, there's this sort of tendency, and lots of people are saying on my Twitter feed, for instance, saying, I, I, you know, I, I can see with my own eyes, you, can, you can't say that you've ever seen anything like this before. You can't say, you, you know, I've been watching football, I've never seen anything like this before. Well, unfortunately, yeah, you, we have seen this before. So, th for instance, you know, a lot of us haven't don't keep count, but there are people who do keep count of these things. So, um, 
Florian Egger, this the the doctor I referred to, who who was uh, the author on that study. Um, looking at the data that he had from 2018, you know, so this so AFP said, "Listen, uh, there's all of these allegations on Facebook. You know, look at these viral posts. They're claiming there's this big upsurge of incidents and blah blah." blah. And he's like, "Even okay, there would still be even if you were to extrapolate these cases um, to cover the full year of 2021, because the vaccines obviously were only have only kind of trickled into availability throughout much of Europe in like February, March, April." You know, and and for for football players, they're they're not exactly they weren't in the uh, the obvious priority group. You know, being as we're talking mainly here about uh, people in their in their twenties, teens, twenties, and thirties. You know what I mean? Um, even if you were to extrapolate that to cover the entire year, and this is a quote: "There would still be fewer heart emergencies in football than in the pre-corona year of 2018." The claim that this dynamic, this trend exists, cannot be derived from our data or other international registry studies. There are no more deaths among footballers than before the COVID-19 pandemic, which echoes what uh, FIFA had been saying, um, you know, when they were asked about this. Have you noticed, you know, is this a thing that you've seen? Have you have you seen a sort of upsurge in case, uh, cases of this uh, disastrous condition? And their answer was no. I mean, yeah, but, you know, what can that compete with the, with people's impression that this is a thing? that's happening you know what I mean but yeah and even with the say with the Ericsson thing you mentioned there you know the fact that the inter-doctors came out and said it's nothing to do with with the vaccine well he hasn't been you know he hadn't been vaccinated or he hasn't been yeah, yeah. He, he hasn't been vaccinated I mean if it had emerged that he had been vaccinated would that give these people more fe- it doesn't make it any more true what these people are saying about there being more uh, cardiac arrests linked to the vaccine but you know it's kind of it kind of feels weird because i was reading your piece and it kind of felt weird when you made that point uh about, about ericsson and i thought oh well that's good but then i was thinking about it sure even if ericsson had been vaccinated it doesn't mean that the vaccine is what caused the issue do you know, mm. do you know it's just such mm. a weird yeah. space that we're in at the moment yeah no it's it's true but i mean what people are people are primed to interpret things in a in a certain way i mean the reason that i wrote that piece is because i had also been seeing all this speculation thinking to myself well is there something to this like can i can if i look at this is there going to be something you know is is there going to be something there? And to, to the best of my ability to work out, I you know, I, I don't think there is. Like if this guy, but but here's but here's the thing about the way that I look at this problem, right? Which is different from the way that a lot of people who uh, who who will continue to insist that there is a problem look at it. When when Florian Egger does a does a study <laughs> for four years, like has has looked at the has counted up a bunch of incidents. Specifically, sat down and tried to make, uh, do this study because there was a problem in twenty fourteen. In twenty thirteen, they made the decision to actually look into this. So yeah. you know, like the, the mere fact that there is a study out there is evidence that the problem has always been there. And uh, coupled with the numbers that they came out with as a result of doing the study. Well, the problem has been there, and you can you can say, well, hang on, this is too many. You know, this uh, this is just too too many people are dying. What something's going on here, right? You, that that's a respectable position to take, I think. I mean, maybe you could say this has to be looked into more. I don't I don't understand what's going on, but what what the information that that is available seems to indicate is that there is no increase in you know to to sort of. Uh, in recent times to sort of reflect oh since the vaccines came in this thing has shot up that because that's kind of the key claim here right you know that that isn't the case maybe that maybe 
the death rate in professional players or, or the the rate of cardiac emergency is high and maybe there are maybe there are reasons for that. I mean people will speculate about this you know maybe maybe the supplements maybe the maybe there are too many games maybe the training you know maybe there are different things going on that's causing you know I don't to be honest I don't know a whole lot about like what what are the rates that you can expect uh, you know what what the rate should be and so on and so forth but what we can say okay just I want to spell this out when when a guy like Florian Egger, who, by the way, I only heard of yesterday, right? I only heard of this guy yesterday. You know, he's an academic who works on this study. But when he says, you know, we counted uh, the incidence of this between 2014 and 18, we looked at it. And in 2018, it appears that there are actually, there's actually a higher incidence then than this year. When he says that, I'm content to believe that he's telling the truth. And that's the, if, key, that's the key here, you know. Well, it like is, it, it is, it is, because because say when when I have uh, been arguing a little bit about this because I, I I I feel as though it's difficult to argue about, and it's kind of there. I've written what I what I think, but like people will say, well, you know, I mean, you know that there is a, you you know that there is um, something going on. We all know it's going on. You know, we've never we've never seen anything like this before. I'm saying, well, okay, we have, or at least this guy has. I mean, people have people have counted this. And according to the evidence that we have, there isn't actually an increase in this. What we do have is a perception of an increase, which is hardly surprising, given that our brains are pattern-spotting machines. That's literally what they are doing at all times. And before, what you had was this, uh, you know, you have, like, people uh, keeling over. Um, it's horrible. It makes no sense. It's... It, it seems it seems random you know it's like it's just one of those mm. awful random events that happens whereas now you've got a thread that connects them all and you're not talking about individual instance you're talking about oh here's another point here's another dot uh you know join join up these dots here it becomes it's not and it doesn't just provide an explanation for this random and senseless and horrific uh thing but it provides a kind of a it it begins to you know to outline a horrible monstrous explanation you know a conspiracy a cover-up uh, and with possible with profound implications for everybody else i mean how many of us have been vaccinated you know so, so on and so forth this is pretty compelling stuff like this is this is pretty spicy stuff you know what i mean uh, if people want to kind of latch on to this sure but all, all i'm saying is that there, there is no there is no statistical evidence to support the idea that this is actually a thing which is which is really taking place yeah and the, the last thing I'll, I'll say about it as well is that if you read those like uh really terrible reports about that napoli player who had to be uh taken off with breathing breathing difficulties why your first thought is this might have something to do with the vaccine and not yes. man maybe he has covid you know, which or, is currently or, ravaging or the entire else. world, which is a respiratory illness. I mean, yeah. how uh, the first thing you don't say is, God, I hope that guy has been vaccinated. And if he has COVID, uh, the vaccine will ensure that the case that he has will hopefully be a lot less strong than it would have been if he was unvaccinated. Like that is the, that is the obvious place that, for your brain to go and not be, my God, the COVID vaccine has caused this uh, respiratory illness in a in a world where a respiratory illness is ripping through the entire continent of Europe. Well, yeah, you also probably don't want to be speculating one way or the other on, you know, on whether he has COVID or not. Absolutely, either, you know I mean? absolutely, Owen. But I'm just saying that's literally what everyone else uh, on the internet is is speculating. So I'm, I'm like, that's the obvious speculation to go to in your brain for me. Zelensky, Zelensky did have. He did have COVID before. Whether he has has had the vaccine, I don't know. I mean, the the whether people have had the vaccine is often regarded as a, as a sensitive piece of information, particularly by 
but I think by people who are not vaccinated. Um, uh, but you know, when you see sometimes the consequences that can that can uh, I mean we're we're talking about cases like Callum Robinson or in Germany Joshua Kimmich. You know, in terms of of criticism, you can see maybe why someone on balance might want to keep that information to themselves. Um, speaking of Joshua Kimmich, though, he has uh, now. Uh, changed his position. So he's done an interview uh, which was broadcast yesterday on on ZDF, uh, the German broadcaster, and he has basically explained... So he's been out for the last while with COVID, uh, or first of all, because he was a close contact, because he was an unvaccinated player, the rules for quarantining when you're a close contact are more strict than if you're vaccinated. So he missed a couple of games. Then he actually was confirmed he, he he tested positive for COVID and he was out with that so and now uh, he's he's no longer positive for COVID but he has got some kind of a lung problem uh, which he's going to need a few more days to recover from so he won't play again until after Christmas meaning in total he'll have missed I think nine matches in the Bundesliga and Champions League which isn't good uh, obviously uh, and he's also he's also it, it appears that the stories about Bayern cutting uh, the wages of unvaccinated players who miss games due to COVID-related problems were true. I mean, I hadn't spoken about them before because I couldn't actually find confirmation that they'd actually done this. But he, this was put to him in the interview, and he said, "Well, look, you know, that's just that's the, that's the club's decision. There's not much I can do about that. I understood the policy." So, what did uh, Kimmich say? Um, this is Derek Ray. Uh, I'm indebted to the ESPN um, Bundesliga commentator, um, but he did a little uh, prestige of the interview, says basically Kimmy said it was a difficult time for him. Uh, his infection was relatively mild. He lost taste, smell, medical check showed fluid in the lung. Um, then, So the, the fluid in the lung that he has, this is why he's out now. He can't do intensive training as there is a danger it could travel to the heart and then the absence would be longer. So essentially it's like a minor problem, but he just needs to wait for it to uh, clear up. Um, so in terms of, you know, obviously it wasn't great when he gets, uh, why didn't he get vaccinated? He said for a long time he saw risks in both the disease and being vaccinated. He thought he could protect himself and teammates by just sticking to health measures and being tested every three days. Um, Kimmich then saw and felt that with the arrival of the fourth COVID wave in Germany, and remember in Germany, we've as we mentioned last week, they've, they're now playing empty stadium matches again and so on. You can't influence it as much through your own personal conduct. Also in the team, they had a few cases, made it clear to him it's not as much in our own hands. Will he now get vaccinated? A quote is yes. I even had a vaccination date agreed with my doctor during my second quarantine period. Unfortunately, the illness came first. Um, now he says he'll be regarded for a while as recovered. That 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 is to say, if you if you've just recently recovered from COVID, um, then that changes whether they're whether they're recommending you to go straight for a vaccination. But when it's recommended, he gets vaccinated. He will do it. And then they're like, "Well, do you feel bad about this?" And he says, "Well." You know, do I, I feel, you know, do I, I left my teammates without me. You know, I missed all these games. That's obviously not great. Uh, but I feel first and foremost, sorry for my family. I had to listen to basically him becoming this, like, national um, talking point and sort of punching bag. You know what I mean? Like, his, his, his um, vaccine status became, like, a big uh, <laughs> an obsession of, of, like, the German media uh, and sort of national conversation for a while. Uh, quote from Kimmich, I was the one who sat at home, missed this huge game, that's the Dortmund game he's talking about, which Bayern did win in the end, couldn't help, 
and as good as left the team in the lurch, not because I got infected, but because I missed two weeks and one week respectively as I was a contact person. Had I been vaccinated, that wouldn't have happened. He says his teammates didn't really have much of a go at him about it, but they did. They were, they had honest conversations about it. You can understand the annoyance when an important player is unavailable. Um, and he says he thinks that some of the criticism was, was unfair. Uh, some of it was below the belt. Some people were using it to enhance their profile. Um, I'm aware of a certain function as a role model. I've wrestled with this as a national team and Bayern player. So, you know, I mean, overall, uh, yeah, as, and, and he makes the point that, you know, it's not as though I'm the only person who's like done something that I've then decided was a mistake and changed my mind. You know, this seems to be something politicians do the whole time. Um, but I'm, I'm apparently the one who, you know, who, who suffers most from it. So, you know, Kimmich has decided to eventually do it. It's cost him a lot uh, to take the stance that he did. And now he's decided at the end of it that it was the wrong stance. Most sports nutrition experts would argue that the, the fueling begins, but the most important element of it is the day before, particularly the night before. So maybe you could yeah. take us through your... To win the Premier League is a war on nutrition. Okay, well, the night before I had a, I had sort of a chicken salad. Yeah, perfect. Lovely, perfect. I put a bit of pesto on. I mean, oh, I put okay. half a jar of That's pesto too much on. pesto, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> and I actually bulked up that chicken salad with a bit of Israeli couscous. We're still okay. We're still in the realms of pretty good nutrition, I would say, the day before a race. I had uh, two beers. It's the best thing in the world for you because it's full of protein. Um, okay, not ideal, but not the end of the world. I had a small Pringles. You know the Ritter, Ritter Sport Bars? I hadn't seen cornflake one before. Nobody had any soup to start with, nobody had any puddings to finish with, they had fish and chips. Okay, I had a whiskey and coke. No, no, come on, <laughs> not great, not great. Not after the beers. Uh, well, it was a whiskey and coke zero. You know, you probably know what direction I was, I was thinking, we'll have another whiskey. You could have uh-huh. one drink, no more, and then you're back to the hotel and you're off to bed. Then I was thinking, what will I have? Nah, you know what, you know, I'll have a cup of tea. Okay, uh, perfect. I had tea, then I had a few digestive biscuits. Well, the, the, there was a suggestion that there was sort of an all-you-can-eat sort of a thing going on. I wasn't counting them. I wasn't counting them. They were like buns to an elephant. <laughs> I was just hoovering them up. And then just before I went to bed, I had a slice of toast with Nutella. No! It was whole grain. It was whole grain bread. <laughs> We've got Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap on this week, along with John Bruin to talk through, uh, well, first of all, Stephen Gerrard's return. Neil looked kind of emotional on TV. How was it in person? As long as we beat him, that was all that mattered as far as I was concerned. I think that if, the f- first thing to remember about everything is that the best thing to do in your life in any game is beat your mates. So Stephen coming back, it was very, very important he gets beat. In the wider sense, I think that, you know, I think it's emotional for Stephen and it's emotional for a couple of the Liverpool players. But I think ultimately, you know, the ground wanted a very clear job to be done. The referee helped. The weather helped. All of that got Liverpool's backs up, I think it's fair to say, and the, and the stands' backs up. And then all of a sudden the final whistle goes and we can all be lovely to Stephen even again uh, for a couple of minutes as he skirts around the pitch and tries to disappear down the tunnel as quickly as possible. I think in general, there's it's, it's funny, um, obviously, managing a side like Aston Villa, a very good club like Aston Villa, I hasten to add, because he's trying to set expectations there. And what he didn't want was for this to be a Steven Gerrard retirement tour event. He wants Aston Villa to be able to compete with Liverpool. I think in lots of ways they did compete with Liverpool, but ultimately they weren't good enough. John, I'm told you're not a big fan of the Steven Gerrard song. I'm shocked. Well, yeah, the the uh, well, it's it's that lyric. Um, I think it needs a bit more work. I think it needs some sort of 
get back style workshop between you know, <laughs> you know um neil may be able to correct me here i might have it completely wrong but it, it, it it's you know, he can pass the ball 40 yards well that's fine yes steven could do that uh he's big and he's fucking hard well you know Come on, surely someone could have come up with a better rhyme well, than that. I, I, I much prefer Stephen Gerrard is our captain. Stephen Gerrard is a red. Stephen Gerrard. Yeah. Uh, that was that one. That one. That one is much better uh, than the other one. But ultimately, you, you can't get carried away with these little bits and pieces. Um, I think. I think that <laughs> I you can. know, that was seemingly so. <laughs> Seemingly so, but I think I think that also the Stephen songs thing is no one really ever made a great song for Stephen when he was the best number ten in the world, no. and whether or not he was hard was relevant uh, in that world. It was somewhat up in the air. Uh, one of the funniest things with Stephen's always been whenever he's talked about when he supposedly him and Jamie Carragher had cross words, and no matter how hard that song might see, think Stephen is, all the folk tales had Jamie battering Stephen and not the other way around. Uh, in that instance, uh, and I, I very much suspect that they weren't true at all, but. No, I think he's. I think he's a funny, funny character, Stephen, in lots and lots of different ways. I, th- I can't believe that he. I, I'm surprised he's he's got into the management. But then when you see him, he looks born to it. You know, he's got, he's got such a. He's, he uses the brow to full effect. His hair has come alive. <laughs> I feel as though it's worth five points a season. Uh, and across the board, he's just got a real presence about him, which you know you can see it. You can see it working. The really strange thing about his team, both his team in Scotland um, and this lot, is they're remarkably miserable. Um, a very very hard football team a very tough football team a very well organized football team very violent whereas Stephen himself was you know he was he was a player for whom at times it felt like tactics went out of the window in his own mind Uh, here they are a drilled drilled unit Aston Villa yeah although you know I have to say right like I mean Gerard okay fair play to him he's you know Villa's obviously good job um, he's he he stopped the tenor out Rangers. That was a good, a good achievement. I don't think everyone I don't think everyone was necessarily giving him ten out of ten for his time at Rangers. But the most important thing was stopping the tenor row and he did manage to do that. Um, and that, but like just this this kind of you know Stephen Gerrard will manage Liverpool one day just seems absolutely crazy. Like the last <laughs> time I remember something this this nonsensical was when Roy Keane won the yeah. championship with Sunderland in two thousand and seven. And it was like, well, you know, there he is. The next, he's going to come. And, you know, he, and, and obviously things didn't work out that way. Like, I, I was reading Jamie Carragher's piece uh, over the weekend. Um, he, made, he made a couple of interesting points. Actually, maybe we can talk about a couple of, a couple of things he said. But, like, he, he basically sort of says, you know, he will he will manage Liverpool one day. I mean, uh, so does Klopp. He... Klopp says the same thing before the match. Well, Klopp, I mean, yeah, but Klopp, <laughs> Klopp doesn't care. Klopp's sitting there. Well, I mean, I know I'm not going to be here. I'm having, you know, he's as good a person to, to succeed me. As any, you know, I mean, it's not as though he's really bothered about that. But Carragher is like, yeah, you know, he will manage. I mean, how can he say something like that at this point? I, I think it's, I think it's a ridiculous situation. The, the idea it's inevitable that it happens. The, for me, the, the really interesting thing is there's no point. Literally, it would be the worst thing that could happen to, to Steven Gerrard if he managed Liverpool and failed. You know, if Steven Gerrard manages Liverpool and doesn't win a league title, then my God, um, you know, he's, he's really put his back into crushing disappointment in a Liverpool shirt. And that to me is, you know, everything he's doing right now, forget the idea that for Steven Gerrard, the win, and I think this is a really important point, and I, th- I think that this is how Steven would look at it as well, to be fair, but let maybe less so some of the people either around him or in the wider media. I think that literally the win for Steven is managing Liverpool to major success. The win isn't just managing Liverpool. 
And I think that, you know, everything he does has got to be based around him getting himself ready to be able to be a successful Liverpool manager. As I say, otherwise, what would be the point? You know, he's, 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 he's come second with Liverpool, I think, on three occasions in terms of winning the league. He's won the Champions League with Liverpool. You know, this isn't, this isn't, this shouldn't be happy, clappy, everybody who theoretically deserves a go get to go. If Liverpool, and the other part of this that's missed is Liverpool's ownership are more than capable of being exceptionally ruthless where club legends are concerned. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, I think there is this there's this desire to sort of frame Stephen as though it's all going to go brilliantly. But you know, ultimately, if he if he doesn't succeed over the medium term at Aston Villa, uh, gets another job, doesn't succeed there, then I don't see, I don't see how he gets the job. And without there being some degree of European success, I don't see how he gets the job. Sure, surely management, John, is difficult enough when you're just trying to win the next game, as opposed to when you're trying to you know fulfill your destiny of managing your uh, boyhood and indeed. Manhood club, manhood club. If I can use that phrase, <laughs> I, think I think that's I've never heard clumsy before. phrase. But yeah, yeah. I, I think you say that, but I always get the impression that that Stephen Gerrard is a guy, and I'm going to use actually. I was I was looking at the quotes of the uh, released last night from Saturday, um, and he said. Of course, I want the players and the people at the club to be as ambitious as myself. I'm not saying my ambitions are different to theirs. We have a lot of ambitious players at the club, a lot of ambitious coaches. The people above us, the board and the owners are ambitious. So I think Stephen's quite ambitious. <laughs> and The funny thing is, as Neil alluded to there, the tragedy of Stephen Gerrard at Liverpool as a player was that Stephen may well be the best player that's ever played for Liverpool, but... Uh, it's almost for the, the the tragic missing out on major trophies that we remember him, and I suppose, uh, and he, he wrote about that extensively in his own autobiography, does didn't he? And he's he's never really shirked that when when asked about it. Um, I suppose if Stephen Gerrard believes in a redemption story, then coaching Liverpool to winning a major title, well, that's the way forward. But as you say, Ken. That's setting yourself up for one hell of a fall, isn't it? And we've seen other people. I mean, you mentioned Roy Keane. I, I, I think Roy Keane daily struggles to live with the fact that he couldn't make it in management. <laughs> um, you've seen, well, I mean, uh, Frank Lampard's. You know, it, it didn't work out at Chelsea. And I mean, he has already. We, we, to Steam, I mean, I sh- feel like I should say Steam Jarrett yes. already has had a better managerial career than than either of those guys. Yeah, I think. So. Well. It, it, Yes, but I mean, I suppose there's a some sort of handicap with, with Scottish football there. No disrespect or anything like that. I think Villa is going to be a, a a better definition of that. But Steve Gerrard must look around and see his peers and see that that very few of them have, have made it in the management game. And, and and like Neil, I was a little surprised that he set out in management because I always thought of him as a fairly singular figure. But um, the, the one thing that his teams do have, what, having watched him at Rangers and now at Villa, they do have that grim face determination, don't they? That, mm. that, that, that when when Stephen had his his game face on, and he really wanted to win a game, that's that's the sort of way that his teams play, and that could be successful. Yeah, Jamie Carragher made an interesting point in this piece. I thought because you know, okay, he he, he referred to to something I've always thought uh, we're different characters. I was the shouty one. He's always been more prone to quiet periods of self-analysis, self-criticism, while embracing the need to lead and inspire those around him. 10 or 20 years ago, my direct approach was perceived as more suited to management. That's why so many predicted I would be the future coach, not Stevie. 
In retrospect, Stevie's way is far more in tune with the modern game. It makes sense we've taken different career paths. Neil, what do you make of that? Because I have to say, I totally disagree with Jamie Carragher. When I look at the... Uh, I mean, he's... Okay, there's, there's different things here. He's talking about his direct approach. And maybe he means there an abusive approach. <laughs> you know, maybe he means an essentially abusive interpersonal approach where you, you sort of co- confrontationally go, well, you know, what the fuck was that? And this is the way of, of, of sort of managing managing people. But the other thing that, that struck me about Carragher is he's so hyper-verbal. You know what I mean? Like, he's just got such a great uh, way of speaking. I mean, you, you know, and it strikes me that's... Every top manager these days is like that. You know, look, at, look at Klopp, like, you know, even Guardiola in his kind of weird way. Guardiola speaks so fast all the time, you have no, nobody has any idea what it is that he's saying. Tuchel is the same. These guys are all like that. Gerard is, is kind of the opposite. You know, this kind of very reserved, talks really slowly, slightly sort of monotonous. Like, I still kind of feel as though Carragher seems to me more like a, like a, a coach personality. I think Carragher, I think that one of the things about this is we, we take these these men and the way in which they are when they're, say, 30 is the way in which we either they will perceive of themselves to a degree or we will always perceive of them. I think I, th- I think Jamie is a, a massively different, significantly different personality now than the one um, who was playing football uh, up until around 2012, 2012, 2013. Carragher's a remarkably open-minded individual, I think. I think he wants to learn as much as as much as possible about absolutely everything at all times. You know, he's it's it's his mind is as broad as an enormous field. Uh, Carragher, I mean that hugely as a compliment. I think Steve Stephen is very, very, very focused, and I think he's very fo- more likely to be very focused on smaller details. I think he's more likely to really drill into to how to get the best out of the people around him. Uh, and I think that a lot of that, you know, I, there was a lot of reports as to how he was when he was when he was coaching younger players at Liverpool, and it was all the small detail work, it was all the focus work, it was this is what you need to be thinking about now. Was a lot of what he was about. I think Carragher is remarkably able, and I think you know I think he's brilliant, and I, th- I like the way you've described him there, Ken. But I think he's. Ex- Excellent at being able to to discuss the very very big picture, and I don't think that that's necessarily Stephen's style. I think Stephen will view himself as a setter of standards. I think he'll view himself as someone who coalesces the people around him, uh, and I think he'll you know he'll feel as though that's the that is the type of type of manager, the type of coach that that he will want to be. I don't believe there'll be that much difference. I, I think in certain moments. You know, the immediate aftermath moments, you know, the excellent moment, for instance, when, it, you know, when it, when I think it was about Morales at Ranger, you know, he's all right, he's singing Sweet Caroline with his top off. I think that's where you get Stephen a little bit more unguarded. Um, I think that that's the thing, you know, I think the Stephen media thing, I think there will be more of him uh, in back rooms, there'll be more of him in rooms, there'll be more of him sort of in offices, more of him in dressing rooms, more of him on the training grounds, given more of, of who he is and what he's about. I do think he has a more guarded media per- personality than, than Carragher's now, which is hugely exciting. Exposed. But sort of in hindsight, I'm, I am actually not that surprised. And I think that the other thing that we did, partially because of the nature of the football is the way where Stephen was just so much raw talent allied to an unbelievable determination, is we maybe just maybe forgot the fact that he was also a hugely intelligent footballer. Whereas we were all aware of Carragher's football intelligence because it was the most important aspect of his game. You know, Stephen became the footballer he did because he had the physicality, he had the technique, but he also put the brain and the determination in there as well. 
He's already got the hang, John, of giving out about refereeing decisions, which is another key part of being a Premier League referee. <laughs> and he's not the only manager of a club outside the top few who felt they got the raw end of the deal over the weekend. Do you think it's, I mean, is it anything more than a coincidence that many of the bigger clubs got match-defining penalty decisions in their favour? Well, it, it, it's crisis point for VAR, as uh, the great sage Richard Keyes has it. Um, oh, has he? Has he? Uh, has he, he gone in on VAR today? There's been a salvo. Yes, Ken. <laughs> Lovely. Um, of, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, not really surprised, is it, to, to, to think that uh, Richard Keyes would be against new technology? But anyway, uh, I penalties, penalties, penalties. But it does it, it does appear to me. You know, when you when you watch the, the games for a fire and attend a game at the weekend, uh, that penalties do seem to dictate the media coverage of matches at half time, at full time, um, and well, they they also dictated all the outcomes. They dictated, this week. They dictated and in this case, it was possibly justified. So if we if you run through a couple of them, the Manchester City one off, uh, off it was not a penalty, Sorry, was Martino. it? No. Yes, no, that was not a penalty. That Manchester City got very lucky there. Uh, the Cristiano Ronaldo one, well, it looked to me like he sort of fell over in the general direction. I of thought someone. it was a penalty, but I think it was mainly because I heard Ronaldo screaming. Uh, his, he screamed. He screamed. No, you could you could hear Ronaldo shout, and it and he sold it. He, he just sold it brilliantly, and I okay, thought yeah. that's a penalty. And then you've got the, the activities of someone who I think is becoming one of the Premier League's greatest villains, and I do en- really enjoy watching him play. Is Rudiger? You know, this oh, guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you recall the the De Bruyne challenge in the Champions League, but he's also added this new facet to the uh, to, to his uh, to his persona. Um, the second one in particular, that was a. You know, a it was a penalty, though. It was a Premier League penalty. I mean, how, we've seen, yeah, it, you're we've right, seen it so many times. You know, well, Andy Robertson gave one away against Brighton. I remember. Just all you need to do is get get your foot between the clearing player's foot and the ball, and that's going to be a penalty. Yeah, yeah, and there was a, there was, a, there was a, the, the West Ham fans were howling in outrage as well, weren't they? Over one at Burnley. That should um, have been one. That should. Yes, it one. should. So, uh, it, 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 to sum up. I fully agree with Richard Keyes. Mm. <laughs> I genuinely, I was I, I was at Anfield, obviously, for our game, and it's hard to put into words how bad at refereeing Stuart Atwell was for 90 minutes. <laughs> it was... Why it don't was you a, put a white shirt on, Atwell? It wasn't even so much that. It was that he... he, he and I think this happened... Listen, this happens in all of our jobs. Don't get me wrong at, at different times. I think Stuart Atwell had a very, very, very bad first 10 minutes, and in trying to correct his very, very, very bad 10 minutes, he then made every subsequent 10 minutes of the first half worse. Um, it was it, he got booed off um, by I think I think I'm right in saying both sets of supporters at half time uh, at Anfield and it's very rare to be honest with you these days a, a referee gets booed off at Anfield it genuinely is you know, why was lo- that though because I was watching this and I, I, my interpretation was because Liverpool had actually did have a load of penalty appeals in the first half none of which were given and it was just the Liverpool fans moaning as home supporters always do when they don't get penalty decisions it was it was more than just that for instance the first yellow there's about four or five one from Trent Alexander-Arnold after three minutes so this is this isn't, this isn't a biased thing. There was four or five tackles that were very 
much in the vicinity of yellow cards in the first 10 minutes. And Atwell doesn't give doesn't give yellow cards for anything. Doesn't give a foul, I think, for one or two. And then Van Dijk does something utterly innocuous in the sort of the right-back position. Um, oh, okay. and yellow card for a foul on uh, Watkins. Yeah, the softest yellow card that you've seen in your life. Then on top of that, you've got the fact that Villa realised this fella's, this fella's rubbish and starts a time waste at a remarkably aggressive level. And he's doing absolutely nothing about it at well all the way through. And I think that... Well, I think he that did, sorry, Neil, to be fair, he did at one point go over... Uh, after Emilio Martinez had had picked up the ball and changed it to the other side of the six yard box to take a goal <laughs> kick, he did walk up and give him a very stern talking to at that point. He did give him a very stern talking to. Uh, the card remained resolutely in the pocket, um, and there was, it was genuinely a game, you know, at Anfield where it, this might not have happened if he'd got a grip of it earlier. But it was a game of sort of seven or eight yellow cards for both sides. Don't get me wrong, for both sides, and basically that ends up being solely three. The, where I think I think that the I think there's a problem with the referee, and I think that Atwell's gone out onto the pitch and he's thought weather's not great, uh, it's going to be a feisty game. I'm going to do everything I can to let it flow, and then all of a sudden, before he knows where he is, he's lost control of the game. And I think the referee in question is actually a little bit deeper than just the pens. I think that there's a wider issue around time wasting, especially for games against Chelsea, Manchester City, and Liverpool, where I think it is an established and almost accepted tactic. And what I would say on that is, I'm very into all forms of gamesmanship. Do not get me wrong, we're playing a game. We're all trying to win it, you know, and we don't have to be we don't have to be nicey nice about it. The one thing I would say is taking the ball out of play takes the money away for, out of the pockets of the people who are paying to watch these matches. And I just think it's a bit moody and it needs to be got a grip of. And I think that that, you know, by all means, cheat in any one of a wider variety of ways, find anything you can, push every advantage, but to sort of rob the people who've paid the money through the gate of the spectacle, I think it's a bit rubbish. And I think everyone's got to get a bit of a grip of it. But I think in general, there's something else here as well. I think the referees might just be a bit tired. The weather was awful all weekend. I think there's a few tired teams out there. Everyone's finding life a bit of a slog at the minute. I just wonder if you've just got some really knackered referees who've been running and running and running and running and it's December and it's game after game after game and it's lashing down and no one quite knows what to do. And I'll always try to find a little, you know, a little bit of human respect for them, but it's hard to put into words how this dreadful is, Stuart Atwell was this job. I'm, this is incredible. I've never, heard, <laughs> I've never heard anyone make an excuse like, what's the excuse to the guys sitting in Stockley Park? Are they Have they fallen asleep in their <laughs> chair? Is that what's going on? Like, uh, I see, for instance, um, there's a, a tweet from Adam Crafton, uh, Adam Crafton, the athletic, and he tweeted, oh God, where is it? He said, uh, the, the VAR watched that replay at least 10 times and still made the wrong decision. The problem is not the system, it's the people. Now, he happens to be talking about the Man City penalty given against yeah. João Matinho, although he could have been talking about a bunch of different incidents this weekend what do you think of that that point of view because i've i've seen a few people sort of say that it's not the you know the, it's not the system it's it's basically the referees are shit and it's it's kind of it just seems as though yeah but like when have they ever been good and what gives you the impression that like you're gonna suddenly there are some good ones out there if only you could find them the problem is the system the problem is the system where everyone has to sit and watch them <laughs> watch them watch a thing 10 times and then give the wrong decision at least if they only saw it once and gave the wrong decision you'd be like well he didn't see it you can't have Big Mick Oliver referee every match because he'd be shattered then for certain. And he's the only one who I think broadly you know, manages to nail things. On, the, on that one, I think what does them is the language. It's two phases of the language. It's the clear and obvious aspect. And then the other thing is hand, arm in unnatural position. And you can make a, a, a argument his arm is in an unnatural position. And then you, you know you can make a, then there's a clear and obvious thing. And everyone's trying to exist within the framework of the language all the time. Um, I'm not bothered by the City one. I mean, I should be theoretically, but City were going to score eventually anyway. Anyway, so you know it's it's not. They one arguably to get, should have had a penalty in, in the first half. Yeah, for, it's for not one to get aerated about. You know, I think in general, I'm. 
listen, you know, I might have a completely different face on if you get me back on in April and I feel like Liverpool have been robbed by something. But I'm sort I think the issue, one of the issues with the, with the referee, with the video assistant referee, is we therefore th- feel as though everything should always be absolutely perfect. And Adam Crafton's right. These are, you know, these, these, these fellas are trying their best, but they're probably a lot of them are, are, are a bit rubbish. But they're also hemmed in by, by the language. You know, he, he, he will not have felt that he, he couldn't do much about that. I mean, the other thing I would say is, God, the footballers could help them a bit. You know, Raul Jimenez basically does everything he can to get John Moss to send him off. It's probably not a did yellow card, the first one. Did he do one. more than Emiliano Martinez? You know, to get in, in terms of uh, getting that yellow, that yellow card. I mean, I, I saw people say the referee didn't have an option. And I'm thinking, well, he actually did. He had an option not to give the first booking, which wasn't a booking. Yeah. And then he had the option to say, Raul, what's going on here? <laughs> I, think he hasn't, I think he hasn't got an option on the second one because the way in which they're all marked and treated. So we can say we don't want them to be marked. I mean, or we don't want, you know, assess them over the long run of a season or something like that. You know, if you want to say that. But I think that is, the thing there is an automatic yellow card. And I, Martinez, don't get me wrong, time-wasting, let's start booking people for time-wasting, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's both in my immediate interest as a Liverpool supporter, but also just in general, I think it'll make the game better. But let's start booking people for time-wasting. But Jimenez really does just basically go, you've got to send me off here, mate. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's ludicrous, it really is. And again, you know, to remember this, I feel sorry for Jimenez in a number of ways. I think he's, you know, the injuries, that's absolutely awful. He's getting run into the ground at the minute by Wolves because there's no alternative to him, but no one knows if he's how good he is anymore because players coming back from a hamstring, you can assess them. I think players coming back from the injury he's had, I think it's a lot harder for coaches to assess where he is as a player. And I don't think he's been anywhere near as effective. So I think he's got a lot of pent up you know, a lot of pent up sorts of aggression in there and a lot of you know, a lot going th- on in his mind. What he does is one of the stupidest things you've seen anyone do on a football pitch in years. So fair play to him for that. Well, one team who didn't need a penalty was Palace against Everton. Neil, this is after a, a joyous renaissance last week for Everton. Looks like they might have fallen back into ruin. We did a big piece a couple of weeks ago on them. I don't know. It was last week just a, a flash in the pan is what we saw against Palace more what Everton are about right now. I think that I think Palace versus Everton was quietly the most interesting game of footy in the country over the course of the weekend. And the reason why is because Palace have chosen, and no one likes the word these days, but Palace have chosen a project. And the project is to develop young footballers, play exciting football, get people excited about the idea of going to Sellers Park, do a little bit. But ultimately, Palace and Everton have won. I think it's now the same number of games over the course of the season. Crystal Palace supporters are very, 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 very happy. Uh, Everton supporters uh, are deeply, deeply miserable. Actually, Everton have won one more league game than Crystal Palace so far this season. And the reason why is because Everton have got themselves over a long period of time into a mindset of, what's the job of the Everton manager? Just win, mate. But what's what 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 like what are the what are the, the just win just stop asking questions just go and win football matches and get us somehow in the top six that's your job what's Patrick Vieira's job it's to be part of a, a renaissance of young South London football talent and get to play an excellent stuff and Everton cannot get away from effectively whatever manager comes in their job first and foremost is we just fucking win games for us because we're going to go mad soon we've thrown all the money at it that we possibly can you, we just need you to win games of footy please and that's in the stands and it's in the boardroom and it's possibly even from some of the players and you're left with this series of managers going but there's got to be you, you end up either with managers who should be that sort of win now manager but they haven't got the tools to do it you know Everton's Everton's squad's good enough to finish somewhere between 9th and 14th where do they sit right now 14th you know it's no big surprise but simultaneously the expectation is will you just win we need you to win. We put all this money in. We've done all this. We've got the new stadium coming. We just need you to win. And I think that that is 
I, I, and as I say, I think that you, you look at you look at the reaction of some supporters to certain events this season, and you look at the reaction of, of Evertonians. Wait, which listen. kind of which kind of events do you mean? Just just to remind us, I mean, I'm sure I can. The, the, the you've had the director of football leave. The performances have been really really poor while Everton have been on this run. You've got the the being two one up against Watford and losing not not three two uh, as a side like Brentford might or four two as a side like Tottenham might, but five two as a side like Everton would. In that scenario, you know, they, 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 it wasn't enough just to be embarrassed. It had to be almost a ritual humiliation at that sort of point for the Blues. And then from there, I think the whole season's just absolutely got out of control. Uh, you know, they got beat the week before, a daft, a horrible little 1-0 by West Ham. But the week before that, they got, went and got a good point at Old Trafford, where they were arguably the better side. And I think that's just sent Everton into this unbelievable spiral where everyone hates everyone. And I don't know quite how you fix this at this point, because I think one of the core issues is what's going on with the the ownership, who sets the, sets the tempo with the football club, what the expectations are. And I think all the time, you know, Evertonians completely understandably because they are effectively the, the seventh team of six in terms of football support in England. Evertonians are left thinking this should all be so much better. We waited for years to someone to have the money and put the money in. Someone's turned up and put the money in and we are now worse and it is less fun. And I think that that is, you know, Evertonians, whilst they were, they thought they were occasionally miserable when David Moyes was the manager and Bill Kenwright was running Everton. That That is an absolute Macy's Thanksgiving parade versus where they actually find themselves now as a football club. And I do think that it's so hard for them. The, the sense of purpose has got to be greater than just somehow get in the top six, will you? Just get in the top six somehow as soon as humanly possible. They haven't got a footballer who's anywhere near as effervescent as Conor Gallagher. You know, you go through all of these these issues around them, and there there is it, 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 it's some sort of tipping point of everyone having a terrible time. And genuinely, and this will sound unbelievably patronising, so I apologise in advance to any of the blue brethren listening. I actually genuinely feel a little bit sorry for them. Meanwhile, oh across the park, meanwhile across the park, Liverpool are basically scoring an unspeakable number of goals, challenging for this, that, and the other. And all Everton want to be is really relevant. Everton have suffered enough um, <laughs> uh, from from what you've had to say. There, but you know, it's interesting, uh, John, that Neil talks about you know everyone. Ha- everyone hates everyone at Everton at the moment. Um, you s- clubs go through spells like that. I think it's not that long ago that Liverpool were in a similar spell, and you know they they also had that that incredible gift of making lots of money disappear. You know they dis- they disappeared the Suarez money. Remember, remember when Liverpool, yeah. Liverpool disappeared the Suarez money? You know they they managed to sort of turn Suarez into Jay and Lovren, and everyone was like, "How have they done this?" And Balotelli, and uh, you know the transfer committee, people wanted wanted to uh, wanted a public execution somewhere in <laughs> somewhere in town. You know these people need to be dragged out, and you know and and justice needs to be meted out to to this. To, that's that's where Liverpool were, like six years ago. So surely there has got to be hope for Everton. That's a question of, I mean, is it simplistic to say Liverpool just managed to stumble across this wonderful, magical individual who came in and sort of was able to speak to everyone in a tone of voice that made them calm down and feel as though, hang on, you know, maybe, maybe we can do this. Is that, is that what Everton needs, just someone who, who's got the right tone of voice or is, is it more complex than that? You, I suppose you alluded to Jurgen Klopp being some kind of messiah figure, uh, which you, you could you could argue that quite quite clearly, couldn't you? Um, what and one of the one of the problems you have in in football is that 
other clubs try and copy their rivals and don't come up as successfully. So Manchester United at the moment have gone down the German model uh, with uh, Ralphie. And now you've got um, Everton. Everton sort of went down the almost like a almost like a, a budget Abramovich route, didn't they? <laughs> They've got a sort of shadowy backer, um, a guy who, it appears to me, his only um, contact in the media is Jim White of Talk Sport, who he regularly speaks to, and I know this sends Everton fans absolutely crazy, so that uh, whichever the latest humiliating defeat was, I think it was the, the Watford 1-0 was talking about, uh, the, you know, Jim White gets the word from uh, Farhad Mashiri over in New York. No, Rafa must stay, and it, it, it appears that the club is in disarray because it's almost like an absentee landlord. Meanwhile, Bill Kenwright is there, and Bill Kenwright is representative of a previous failing era, um, and, and 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 where Liverpool got it right was. Beyond the Jurgen Klopp Messiah figure, they also had people like Michael Edwards. They, the transfer committee was much derided and much discussed in the in, in the Brendan Rodgers era, wasn't it? And you know, uh, we go back to Neil. Remember it well. I'm, I'm sure that the Clint Dempsey Farago and all this type of thing, they had to learn on the job to to to, to get it right, and then they made the best selection they could have made in getting a manager like Jurgen Klopp to be the front man for the club. Um, and, and someone who is prepared to oversee things, but is also prepared to delegate. Getting the right manager for a club is, as we've seen at Manchester United and, and, and Chelsea, even though they still do deliver success, is, is very difficult. Um, but Everton is, is an amorphous mess of a structure. Um, you know, the stadium thing sort of hangs over them. We don't know quite how... Remember when we talked about Arsenal moved into the Emirates at a time when they were a successful club. Mm. Tottenham moved into their stadium when they were a successful club. Are Everton going to move into their new stadium when they are 14th in the league and all hate each other? Well, that is entirely possible, isn't it? And so I am not going to suggest I have any cure to Everton's ills, but I do know that the way things are now, it is not going to deliver what Evertonians want. But then again, and, and Neil... It's probably too polite to say this. Maybe Everton Evertonians really enjoy being this miserable because some of them, it does seem to be that case, doesn't it? <laughs> I think I, I think it's I think it's so hard to to sort of catapult themselves, and I think that a number of things have just not sort of gone quite right uh, at key times, and I think that they keep. You know, that is not dissimilar, though not as extreme. Uh, you know, the more certain Rio Ferdinand is to do with something about Manchester United, the more dreadfully wrong it'll go. It does feel as though there's key moments with Everton where it just goes the wrong way for them. And, you know, these are maybe 50-50 decisions, tosses of a coin, that they just end up in it just not going quite where they like. I think that they do need to have a sense of what they want Everton to be. That is beyond literally just the results. And then I think the results can come over a period of time. I think there's, there's, there's long been a desire not to be a selling club. You know, part of why Liverpool managed to get to where they got to was because for a long period of time, they were a selling club. And I still think that if COVID hadn't have intervened, they would have sold one of them from three in the summer of 2020 and then began to sort of begin the next phase. Being a selling club for most clubs in this country, the vast majority of them is absolutely fine. But I think all the time there's getting excited or backing the wrong horse, but not just backing it a little bit, losing your absolute bollocks on it. 
and that's the that has been what Everton I think have managed to do sort of quite repeatedly there was the summer where they managed to buy I think six number 10s it felt like all in one summer um, and then picked Rooney every week in 2015-16 you know this is this it's really I, I think that that's what's got a there just needs to be a real clarity of there needs to be a decision making framework where Everton are able to go that thing there is none of our business that thing there is none of our business stuff like this here is our business and instead it feels as though everything is Everton's business and therefore nothing is alright lads we leave it there brilliant Neil John thanks so much cheers thank you they're all pampered we haven't got leaders They're all just headphones. Inside and outside, blue They don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't kick out on the pitch. They don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. How have England reacted to that equaliser? Perfectly. Um, no panic. Calm straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. England will win after four minutes. And they still lost. Maggie Thatcher, your guys took a hell of a beating. Maggie Thatcher. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sig Thorson. Oh, oh my word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, we'll just say, Sig Thorson. <laughs> just cannot. Now to the final news of the day, you guys. The draw for the knockout stages or for the last 16 of the Champions League. I don't know, should we talk about the original draw? Because I'm more excited about Messi versus Ronaldo than what's emerged <laughs> from the second draw, which took place a few hours later. Oh, I think let's talk about the cock-up, Owen, because... I mean, uh, that's, the that's... cock-up, which has pushed the re- release of this podcast out quite late, so I'm glad you've all been bearing with us for this one. We have already recorded. We might just keep that uh, that initial recording. Um, the for, last you know, recording, yeah, maybe over Christmas we can play it as a part of the lost recordings. But yes, anyway, what the hell happened today, Ken? Well, I mean, just a, another fine, uh, another fine mess from UEFA. Uh, <laughs> they, they really did this time. Uh, I mean, so UEFA were were in the process of doing the Champions League draw at like eleven o'clock today, and then, you know the usual way seems like a needlessly complicated system. Loads of ball, balls, loads of balls. Andrea Chavin is there, <laughs> and uh, and they're pulling out uh, ties and whatnot, and they've got they've already got Benfica out of the pot, um, who've who have been drawn against Real Madrid, and then they've got Villarreal out of the pot, and they've been drawn against uh, Man City, and then they've got Atletico Madrid out, and th- and then and that's when this happens. So for Atletico de Madrid. We have uh, uh, no. The possibilities are uh, all except Liverpool, uh, who was in the same group, and uh, Manchester United. Uh, Manchester United has been already drawn. So we have uh, among the possibilities Ajax, Bayern, Lille, and uh, Juventus. FC Bayern Munich. So, Club Atletico de Madrid will face uh, the six-time winners of uh, the UEFA Champions League, 
Bayern Munich, so Atletico. So at that point, they claimed that Manchester United couldn't be drawn against Atletico Madrid because, you know, there are various restrictions on who can play who. You can't play a team that you were in a qualifying group, uh, one, of the, one of the groups with. You can't draw, if you finish first, you can't draw another first place team. You can only be playing in second place teams, of course, and vice versa. And you can't play another team from your country at this point. You can from the quarterfinals on, but from the, they still keep teams from different from the same country separated in the in the round of sixteen. So, um, so it was claimed that Manchester United sort of had to be excluded from that draw for to play Atletico Madrid. Atletico ended up getting drawn against Bayern. They then finished out the draw: Salzburg against Liverpool, Inter against Ajax, Sporting Lisbon against Juventus, Chelsea against Lille, and PSG against Manchester United which of course means Ronaldo versus Messi and all that PSG and Man United have played each other pretty much all the time in the Champions League in, in recent years but that was the the draw that emerged but what about the fact that they the draw this draw was only possible uh, because of this um, condition that they had imposed upon it well I'm not saying the draw was only possible I suppose it could have happened um, but they had falsely put in this condition that Manchester United couldn't play it let go when in fact they could this was then pointed out to them afterwards and uh, long story short they realised we're going to have to do this again we can't uh, you know we've we've made a right row of balls of this and now we have to uh, now we have to, uh, to, to, do, to have a do over which is you know, Real Madrid apparently had said, "Well, hang on. What, what do you what do you mean you have to do a do over? You'd already drawn our ball. We 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 were drawn against Benfica. We're happy enough with that. <laughs> they were happy enough with that draw. And you know, Man City, Man City had got Villarreal. Uh, I don't know what Man City's view in it was, but this had all happened before the the fatal error, which UEFA blamed on software." Following a technical problem with the software of an external service provider that instructs the officials as to which teams are eligible to play each other, a material error occurred in the draw for the UEFA Champions League round of 16. So, uh, as a result of this, the draw has been declared null and void and will be entirely redone at uh, 1500 hours CET. Well, we have just seen the new draw. And, uh, well, <laughs> the new draw, same as the old draw? No. Funnier than the old draw? Oh, I think so. Uh, the, the, way, the way that it happened, I have to say, was extremely funny. First of all, Salzburg out of the draw. Salzburg, of course, remember in the previous draw, were drawn against Liverpool. And this time, who came out of the, the, the leader's spot, the first place team spot? Bayern Munich. So a nice local little game for Salzburg and Bayern Munich. Probably the two closest together. Well, maybe um, the Liverpool and the Manchester teams are closer together. Um, but that's a, that's a little derby there for Salzburg and Bayern. And probably better from Bayern's point of view than playing Atletico. Next up, uh, Sporting Lisbon against Manchester City. Oh, well, you know, I mean, it was Villarreal, the first one now it's Sporting, the other side of the Iberian Peninsula. But I'd say also, you know, City would be going, well, you know, to be honest, that could have worked out a little bit worse uh, for us. Who's up next? Benfica come out. Benfica, you remember Real Madrid's uh, opponents in the original draw. Benfica are now drawn against Ajax. Okay, so Ajax uh, previously had to go to Inter, uh, and now they're playing Benfica. Pfft, 
you know, I'd say they're both uh, probably happy enough with that. Chelsea are next up. Who are Chelsea going to get? They got a nice draw last time with Lille. I mean, if you finish second, then you get drawn against Lille as a first place team. You've done pretty well. Oh, it's Lille. It's Chelsea against Lille. So it's exactly the same uh, for Chelsea. Now, Atletico, the team whose draw caused all the trouble the last time. Man United, remember, were excluded from playing against Atletico. Who comes up? It's Manchester United. Manchester United have got Atletico. The, the draw that was that they tried to prevent, uh, but that uh, justice, justice prevailed and Atletico Madrid will now play against Manchester United in the Champions League. So who did that leave of the um, first place, of the, uh, the second place teams rather, Villarreal, Inter and PSG, Juventus, Liverpool and Real Madrid. So some pretty big clubs left. Villarreal come up here. Liverpool are excluded from playing against Villarreal, who can therefore only be drawn against Juventus and Real Madrid. And it's Juventus, uh, Villarreal, Villarreal against Juventus, leaving Inter and or, or, or PSG to be drawn against Liverpool and Real Madrid. It comes out, it's Inter against Liverpool, which leaves PSG against Fiorentino Perez's Real Madrid. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing has been a very long, very elaborate, very special joke at the expense of Fiorentino Perez. So he goes from <laughs> having to play against Benfica in the round of 16 to having to play against uh, Mbappe, uh, Messi, Neymar. I mean, this is, a, this is like some kind of a nightmare. How can UEFA do this to him? Is there any insult to which UEFA will not, will not stoop? Is he supposed to believe that UEFA hadn't, didn't concoct this entire thing as an elaborate joke at his expense? Is he, is he supposed to believe that this all happened by accident? The last two teams out are PSG against Real Madrid. Is he, is he supposed to believe that that kind of thing happens? by accident well I guess he doesn't have any choice uh, it's uh, basically Ken, if, you, if you think for one second that I'm not tuning into El Juran Guido tonight you don't even know that you don't even <laughs> oh, yeah, know yeah, me yeah. man <laughs> no, I think I think El, El Juran Guido's gonna get another little bump in the ratings after that <laughs> great draw number two from UEFA today thanks Ken thanks Murph thank you thank, thank you all thank you Ken and thank you indeed to UEFA Thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you again. Plenty of Premier League during the weekend. We might be playing you some El Guido tomorrow. So who knows? Chat to you then. That's well, World Service members only, of course. You gotta sign up, baby. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.